0: Well, I, I just enjoyed the, the worship this morning, and, and boy, you guys really sang good uh, during uh, The Great I Am. But it's easy to do that when you're singing about The Great I Am, right? I might have to do that song again. Maybe even today. Let's do that again at the, at the service. That'd be great. You know, um, uh, we're, we're in Romans, and we're, I, I just want to tell you right up front, today we're getting deep into the book of Romans, Okay. So I feel like an elementary school teacher telling the kids, put your thinking caps on right now, because we are in into, into some of the deep truths of God's Word. But as we understand the deep truths of God's Word, we, we get to know our Creator even better. Amen? And, it, and that, that way, every time you do sing about the great I Am, it means a little bit more to you as, uh, as we get into Genesis, er, uh, Romans chapter 9. Just to give a little review of where we are at so far, uh, the book of Romans, written by The Apostle Paul, he begins the book of Romans with an understanding of the doctrine of sin and and helping us understand that we are sinners and that God is just. He would be completely just to punish us because of our sinfulness. I'm glad the book doesn't end there and then it goes on to the topic of salvation. And there we learn that because of the grace of God, we're able to receive salvation, that we, we don't have to receive the punishment for sin and it is by grace through faith and not by works that we do. And once that happens, once you uh, make that decision and you accept Jesus Christ, that begins a process of sanctification where, where God purifies us. He, he makes us become more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And, and uh, then he goes from there into the topic of security. Where we begin to understand that when, when a person becomes saved, they become a child of God. We're sons of God. Man. And that doesn't change. And and, and uh, we don't lose that, and so we can be secure in our relationship, and that, that gives us the freedom to, to, grow, to grow, to learn, and to grow. Starting last week, we began the topic of selection, the idea of, of who, who be, be gets, uh, becomes saved, who uh, gets chosen. And so think, who, who, who goes to heaven, and who does not? Those are the questions. Can you think of anything more important than understanding that, some of the answers to these deep questions? And, um, and so last week we talked about how salvation is individually applied. You, God chose the Jews, but yet not all Jews were actually chosen, right? Not all Jews were saved. And, and yet there were people who weren't Jewish who could become saved. And we talked about that last week. And, and we learned that trusting in your good works, trusting in your religious affiliation, trusting in your family connections, all of those are false hopes. Amen? And, and so Paul now dives into even some of the deeper doctrinal truths of, of selection, or oftentimes we call it election, but that doesn't, that doesn't start with an S. So we're going to call it selection, right? Just to make it easier since all of the topics here. So with that in mind, now we understand where we are in Romans chapter 9. Let's read verses 10 through 13 together and see what Paul has to talk about this doctrine of, of selection. Chapter chapter nine verses ten through thirteen, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved. But Esau I have hated. Wow, strong words here, right? And and this is some of the deep truths of scripture. We read this, and if you don't struggle a little bit with this passage trying to figure out what it's getting at, then 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 you, you've missed the, the meaning, right? And so I want to start off by explaining something here. This this sentence, Esau have I hated. A lot of people have taken this, this verse and they've taken it to mean that God, without any rationale for it, takes some and he chooses some and says, I decide I want to love these ones. And others, he says, you know what, I just, I'm just going to decide I'm going to hate these people. And they apply that to the doctrine of election and they say, well, then that must mean that God just randomly chooses some for to be saved and randomly chooses others to go to hell. Is that what it's saying here? I don't believe that's what it's saying in context, which is why it's so important to study the Bible in context. When we look at that, first of all, I want us to understand this, this, the word hated there's a Greek construct here that, that, that's being used to show really a, a distinction between two categories of people. And, um, and so when it says that he has hated them, it doesn't mean that he hates them in the sense that we would use the word for despise somebody, right? It's not the, that he has an ill will towards him. It's that he, when you put the words love and, and hate in a, in, into the same context like this, he's doing it to show that there's, there's a, a distinction and that if you were to put the two together... You would look at one and say, this is a completely different category. One would be considered hate compared to what the other one is. And they say, well, that sounds a little odd. Well, Jesus used the same construct. I want to share a, a verse in, in Luke 14, verse 26. Um, the, the concept here um, that, uh, where Jesus uses the exact same verse. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Said, Wait a minute, what? Does Jesus teach love? Yeah. Well, God is love, right? In fact, Jesus, when asked, what's the greatest commandment of the Old Testament, he says, I'll, I'll do better than that. I'll sum up the entire Old Testament for you in two commands. Number one, what is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So, love the Lord your God. That's half of the Old Testament right there. The second half, what does he say? The second is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus taught love. I mean, that, that, that's so clear from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry. So clear that no one could say Jesus uh, to, brought or started a religion of hate. Right? No one could say that with a straight face. You can lie about Jesus, you can blaspheme all you want, but Jesus started, uh, started not just a religion, but he started a relationship of love with people. Amen? Amen? So it's very clear. So we have that, that's very clear. Then we come to Luke 14 and we realize what he's saying is, if, you're, if you have a, such a love for the world and you, have, and you love the things around that you're not willing to follow Christ... You have to put Christ in a category that is completely different. And so he uses this Greek construct and says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, then you can't be my disciple. What's he saying? You have to put Jesus in a completely different category. Does that make sense? He's not saying, hate your family. In the sense that we would say it. That's just the way it's used. And so now take that understanding with us back to Romans 9. And he's not saying that, oh, I just decided I'm going to hate Esau. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, but Jacob, he lifted him up to a completely different category. He gave him a blessing that he did not give to Esau. A blessing that was not going to just affect him, but every generation after him in his line. All the way on down to Jesus Christ even. And so... Um, uh, so this, this concept of hate, we, we need to clearly understand it. The idea was that, they were, that, that he was put into a lower category. It shows the grandness of the contrast between the two. Now I'll give a little background to what, uh, what Paul is talking about here. We go all the way back to the father of the Jewish nation, which is Abraham. And we remember that God made a promise to Abraham that he would preserve a line. And, and that line was promised starting with Abraham... Abraham attempted it on his own with, uh, with someone other than his wife, and that didn't work out so well, right? You might remember the story. But God said, no, even though your wife is old and he was old, through Abraham and Sarah, God miraculously answered his own promise, right? And they had a son named Isaac. And you might remember how this, the story of Isaac and how Isaac then was introduced to his wife, Rebekah. That's the Rebekah that Paul is talking about in Romans 9. And so God promised to preserve his line. He did that. But then Isaac and Rebekah have two children, twins, Esau and Jacob. Which is the line? Which is the line that's going to preserve the line of the Messiah? Which is the line that's going to preserve uh, the the promises made in the Abrahamic covenant? That's what this is about. Normally, it would be passed through whom? The oldest. That's Esau. That's Esau. And so it's a very different uh, situation. In fact, if we look at uh, Genesis 25, you don't have to turn there. I'll just put it up on the screen. But that's Genesis 25. That's the context where we find the quote that Paul uses in Romans 9. In in, uh, 25 verse 3, when she has those two children, it says, It was said to her by the Lord, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So it's in this context that God says, I know the, normal, the, the norm is to take the older one and he's going to get all the, thing, all the advantages and he's going to get... But I'm telling you, the older one is going to serve the younger one because sometimes God's ways are not man's ways. Right. Sometimes God does things a completely different way for whatever reason he has in mind and, and whether we understand his reasons or not, it doesn't matter. Let God be God. And so God chose Jacob. Well, why did God choose Jacob? What it tells us in Romans 9, it says that it had nothing to do with his works. Right? So because Jacob, Esau, before they were even born, before they had the time to do anything good or time to do anything wrong, it was through God's choice that everything happened. So God's election here had nothing to do with their goodness. Uh, So then what was the basis of God's choice? Again, it's important here to remember the context that we're studying this in. How do we end Romans chapter 8? And when we look at Romans chapter 8 and we think of what is the basis of God's choice, Romans 8 gives us a plan. And that plan, I'm just going to review it today. The plan started with foreknowledge. Do you remember that? Those that God foreknew. What does he foreknow foreknow? It doesn't say. But foreknowledge led to what, we, what uh, Paul calls predestination. Predestination simply means to choose the, de- the final destiny ahead of time, right? So God's plan, his eternal plan, was based on foreknowledge. That's an amazing thought when you think about it, too. That God can plan because he knows what's going to happen. Have you ever had a prayer answered... Where God already had to put things in motion to answer that prayer long before you ever knew there was even a problem? Why? It's because God has the ability to predict the future. Right? He knows. And so he has this foreknowledge, foreknowledge, predestination. Those he predestined, he makes sure they get a call. They're called. Then from calling to justification, from those, that's the salvation. And justification to glorification. And so God is in charge. He has this plan. It goes all the way back to the foreknowledge He knows, all the way to, to the final product. Guess who's in charge of that? It's God. Right? That's the decree of God, and there's no escaping that. So there are two issues at, at play here. We have the issue of what we call the sovereignty of God, His ability, his, his ability to choose what's going to happen, and it happened. The all powerful nature of God, that's the sovereignty. And on the other side, you also have the issue of human responsibility. Don't we have to respond to God in order to receive salvation? And so you've got these two, these two issues. And so two, I, I couldn't talk about this passage without bringing up two the theologians, Calvin and Arminius. John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius. They came down on two opposite ends of, of that issue. Um, John Calvin... Would, would emphasize the sovereignty of God. Jacobus Arminius would emphasize the human responsibility that we have to respond in faith. Then you take what those people say and then people take those, their beliefs to opposite extremes. Isn't, isn't that human nature? <laughs> we just see that so much. They take it to opposite extremes. So if you were to take the extreme Calvinist, I'm not saying Calvin himself, but the extreme Calvinism, he would say... That God chooses who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, and we are mere puppets, right? So, no matter every choice you make, it's because it's God wrote the story, like characters in a book, right? Um, if you take the opposite extreme, uh, take the uh, Arminianism to its extreme, then you would say that God gives us all the options, but we get to choose our own destiny. Period. So, it's based on you—if you choose or not choose—and if you happen to hear the gospel or not happen to hear the gospel, all of that, it's, it's, it's just by chance in many cases. And, and, and so those would be the two extremes. And, and so we have to watch out for both of those, those extremes. In fact, um, the problem with extreme Calvinism is that they would take the top two and they'd have to switch those. They say that God had to make his, God, God had to predestine what would happen in order to foreknow it. But is that what Romans 8 said? It's not what Romans 8 said. Uh, and so, so we, we, we see that that's not what, what, what's going on here. Then with the problem with taking Arminianism to its extreme is they like to take the word predestination right out. Let's just skip that word. Let's pretend like it doesn't exist. Is that ever a good idea? To leave something in scripture and just pretend like it doesn't exist? That's not a good idea. And so they would just like to say that, that those who are called, if the, it's all up to them whether they accept it or not. And so what we want to do today and, and, and the ne- next couple of weeks as we go through Romans uh, 9, 10, 11, we want to make sure we find that biblical balance, right? We want to balance those two so we can see how that happens uh, according to God's plan. Now, I want to give you a warning right now. So, uh, so that way, no one can say I didn't warn you, all right? If you tend to lean a little bit too much to the side of Arminianism, then Romans 9 might beat you up a little bit. Is that okay to say? If, though, you lean a little bit too much to the side of too much extreme Calvinism, wait till we get to chapter 10. Okay? But the point is, when we're done, the good news is, when we're done, we should be able to get a good, balanced view to where we understand the sovereignty of God and also understand human responsibility. And that should give us a clear understanding of the gospel that is so precious to us. Does that sound good? Are you willing to go on that journey with me? All right, Um, let's do that then. Uh, So the point then, from chapter 8, that brings us into chapter 9, is that God's eternal plan is based upon foreknowledge. Foreknowledge of something. Foreknowledge of what? Now we're in chapter 10, and he brings up Jacob and Esau. And uh, so the point of chapters 9 and and 10 really kind of beats up the point of of the of the extreme arminianism because extreme arminianism would say god chooses those that he knows or foreknows will do good works see if you take the arminianism to the to its extreme what happens is you have people say you know god chose me because he needed a superstar on his team <laughs> right he needed someone who could do what i do and and I, have, I bring all these skill sets to, the, to Christendom, right? I can bring these skill sets to the church, and so God needed me, and so he chose me based on the fact that he knew what I would do. Do you see a problem with that? Yeah, I, I hope you do. That—that uh, there, that there's, a, there's a problem with that, and, and that's why in Romans 9, he kind of beats up that, that thinking. He says, for the children, talking about Esau and Jacob, not yet being born... I don't know about you, but it's, it's hard to get, rack up a list of good works when you haven't been born yet, right? So not yet being born, n- nor having done any good or evil, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So God had a plan for Jacob. God had a plan for Esau. They were very different, and, and it was not based on anything they had done yet. Why? Because in Romans 8 we learn he based his plan on foreknowledge. It's not on the works that we would do. And, uh, and that's what we read in, in chapter 9, verse 11. So that brings us to the first of three principles of election that I, I want to talk about today. Three principles uh, that we find. Number one is that salvation is never based on how good God knew you would be. You know what? Salvation is never based on how good God knew you would be. This is a humbling thought when you really think about it. In fact, let's compare Jacob and Esau, since that's what Paul does in in Romans 9. Um, In fact, just looking at their names, Um, do you know what the name Esau means? It means red or hairy. I picture him as both, right? If you actually look at some of the scriptural references, uh, he was a hairy guy. In fact, so hairy that later on, Jacob tried to imitate him, and so he takes animal skins and puts it on his his arms, convinces his dad that he's Esau. That tells you, he's a hairy guy. He's a, he's a, a rough and tough, hairy kind of guy. Jacob, I don't know why on earth they named him Jacob, but you know what Jacob means? It means deceiver or conniver. I mean, we name our kids names like, oh, this is hope, this is charity, you know, we never say, oh, this is my son Rebellion. or this. <laughs> We don't do that, right? But here, they name their son Jacob. Jacob means deceiver, conniver, right? And that's, uh, that's what they named him. Now, a name's only a name, right? Unless you live up to it. But it seems like they were pretty good at predicting what their children were going to turn out like. Um, when we find out that Esau was a hunter. In fact, if you read Genesis 25, the very next verses after what we just read a few moments ago, uh, you, you, you read that he was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman. He was a daddy's boy, right? In fact, it says that he was Isaac's favorite son, which, by the way, that's a bad idea to have favorite kids. I tell each one of my kids, they are by far my favorite. So each one knows you're my favorite one, right? So... And no matter who I'm talking to, they're my favorite. Because I love them equally. But, but he was his dad's favorite. His dad was an outdoors guy. He loved, he loved eating the food that, that Esau would bring back. It was just, when you, he was the Marlboro man that didn't smoke. Right? That's Esau. <laughs> Outdoorsman. Jacob, not so much. In fact, in the description of Jacob, it says that he's, in, he's a homebody. It says that in the Hebrew, if you check it out homebody, right? He was the guy, indoorsman, that said he did not like to go outside. He'd like to stay at home. In fact, his number one uh, hobby was cooking, right? In fact, uh, um, just this week, Monica was talking about my cooking on at least two occasions, and it wasn't positive. Right? <laughs> Why? It's just not, it's, you know, it's not what every man dreams of doing. But you know, now I'm not saying, if you like to cook, guys, I'm not making fun of you, all right? In fact, who was chosen in this context? So, uh, so we find, that we very, you couldn't find two men more different. But you find, too, that Jacob lived up to his name. Jacob stole the birthright from his brother Esau. Remember that story? Yeah. He stole the birthright from his brother. Well, maybe not steal. Maybe steal isn't the best word. He connived. Yeah. He connived. He deceived his brother to get the birthright from him. Later on in life, he's about to get the blessing, or his older brother Esau is about to get the blessing from Isaac, his father. His father is getting old, didn't see very well. And what did he do? He stole the blessing from his brother. He connived it. He put on the skins. He, he, he even got his mom in on the action. So, so he's like, are, are you sure that this is Esau? Yes, father. Can't you feel the hair on my arms? <laughs> Conniver. And you look at that and you say, wow, couldn't be more different. Esau, we, don't, we learn less about Esau, but we see one thing that's very clear as you read the story of Esau. He was an independent man. He, he, he kind of felt like it's not that big of a deal to lose some of these things because I can earn for myself. I can live on my own. He went out and just did his own thing. That's Esau. And so you, you look at these two and, you, and, you, and it makes you wonder, what's going on. In fact, when I now, when I look at the words, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, it's not the Esau that I hated that jumps out at me. It's the Jacob I have loved. God, you loved Jacob? I mean, Jacob was a sinner. In fact, in the story, Jacob is clearly the worst of the two. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. And that's what we find with, uh, with Jacob. We, and, uh, and we see this constant friction between the two because, uh, and, and most of the problems are caused by Jacob. But you know, this constant friction, if you actually follow it down, if you don't skip the genealogies in Scripture, you find these two lines fighting with each other all through history. In fact, there's one point in history where you find a king. You find down in the line of Esau, a king who is over Israel. Wait a minute. Isn't that supposed to be the line of Jacob? Yeah, there was one of Jacob's as well. And you have these two kings living at the exact same time both of them, in one sense or another, king over Israel. And I see a lot of looks on your faces like, who's that? It was Herod and Jesus. And so if you follow the story, don't skip the genealogies, okay? But if you follow the story's description, you find these two brothers in the, in the sense of, of their descendants going against each other. And Herod says, I want the kingdom my way, right? And Jesus is saying, No, I want, I'm going to be the king of the Jews in a very different way. Who ends up winning, by the way? Jesus, from a human perspective, you could think that Herod won for a while, but Jesus is still alive, right? And uh, Jesus did die, but he rose again. Herod did not; he stayed in the grave. And so we see this being played out all through history. And so what we find in 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 the story is fascinating because you compare these two men, and God says, "I'm going to look down on Jacob, and in spite of his sin." I mean, when you think of foreknowledge, it could not have been foreknowledge of the good works that Jacob was going to do. Can we all agree on that? So whatever God foresaw in Jacob, it was not his good works. And he said, I'm going to take Jacob, and I'm going to, I'm going to change him. I'm going to convert him. He is no longer going to be Jacob the conniver, Jacob the deceiver. He's going to be Israel. Israel it contains the name of God right in it. El is short for Elohim, the, the very first word for God we find in Scripture. Uh, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so he's gonna, he was going to be the leader of, he's going to be the father in a sense of a whole nation. And that's why, to this day, we have a nation called Israel. The Jews are called Israelites because they come from the line of, of Israel or Jacob. And God changed him. God converted him uh, and, and changed him. It brings us to that, back to the point. Salvation is never based on how good God knew you would be. Never. This is an extremely humbling thought. By the way, it makes sense, too. When you look at the history of, of the world, the, the, the root of all sin is what? Pride. The root of all sin is pride. We saw it first in Lucifer when he said, I will be like the Most High. It's pride. We saw him pass down that pride onto Adam and said, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. If you just have this fruit, disobey him. Be your own boss. Don't listen to God. And sin entered into the world, and guess what? It's the it's the same thing for us. And we try and take God's place. We don't let God be God in our minds. And, uh, and so, so we, 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 we pride ourselves in who we are. But this is an extremely humbling thought. So God made the solution for sin all about humility. Not about works. Not something you could earn. Does that make sense? So God, in fact, if if you want to be humble just a little bit more, is it okay to, to, to beat ourselves up just a little bit more? Look what 1 Corinthians 1 says. Same author, Paul. He's talking to the Corinthians who were... Full of pride. They saw themselves up here when they were spiritually way down here. And this is what he said to them. He said, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many, excuse me, not many mighty, not many noble are called. What's he saying? Hey, look around. You see any wise people here? (laughs) Any mighty people? Any noble people? That's what he's saying to the Corinthians. Not many of them are called, verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh, and here's why, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We should see that gap between God and us at all times. And we don't glory in ourselves in, uh, in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Amen. Not about us. Right. And so, so that's what salvation, God created salvation in such a way that there is no possible way to be proud of our salvation. Does that make sense? That's what God is getting at. And, uh, uh, but notice that Jacob, as selfish as he was by nature, he, he was different than Esau. He did indeed turn to God. In fact, um, I'm going to read Genesis 32, verses 9 through 11. You don't have to, to uh, turn there. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen. We're not going to camp here. We're just going to fly through. But Genesis 32, um, this is uh, this was written when Jacob had decided to, to restore a relationship with his brother Esau, and he saw Esau was coming, and he was afraid because he figured Esau was probably mad. Right? I mean, wouldn't you be mad if if your brother stole the birthright and the blessing from uh, from your family? And and so he was afraid he was going to be mad. And this is what we read in verses 9 through 11. Then Jacob said, "O God of my father Abraham." And God of my Father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, "Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown to your servant. Let his attitude sink in there for a moment. I am not worthy of all the least of the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown to your servant, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff. And now I have become two companies. God had blessed him in ways he had to divide his company into two. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother and with the children. And that's what he was afraid of. That brings us really to the second principle of, of salvation, second principle of selection. What we find here is that salvation does imply a humble cry for mercy from God. See, salvation, what God was, it wasn't that God foresaw good works. He was such a good person. He wasn't a good person. But what we do see in the life of Jacob, that we never once see in the life of Esau, is we see him coming to a point where he recognizes, I, I, I don't deserve anything. He humbled himself. He just cried for mercy. And, and, and we see that, that I'm not worthy of your mercy attitude. And you know what? That's what God's saying. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for. I'm choosing that. I'm choosing that. What a, what a different thing. This, by the way, this is the principle that Jesus taught from the beginning. Isn't it? Isn't this what Jesus was teaching too? Uh, uh, Paul's not bringing up something new. This is what Jesus taught. In fact, in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 7, verse 40 through 47, uh, we find that there's a woman with a reputation. And you know what that means, right? So... When, when the Bible talks about a woman that has a reputation of, saint, of, of sin, in this case, uh, it's very clear in the context. This is a woman who took one of God's greatest gifts, one of God's greatest gifts, and treated it like dirt. And so, instead of it be of, of taking this precious gift that God gives as an expression of love between a husband and a wife, she turned it into something just a way of making money. Okay, so we all know what I'm talking about, right? I'm trying to say it in a, in a, in a way understanding there are young ears in here too, right? But you, we're on the same page. This is, this is what she, who, she, who she was. And then she comes, in, uh, she comes into the presence of Christ. And I probably should have put this in white so you could see it a little bit better. I'll read it for you. Um, but by the way, she came in, I want to say this. She came in with an alabaster jar of some kind of perfume, opened it up, poured it on the feet of Jesus, and the Bible says that she was weeping at his feet and washing his feet with her tears. Simon, a Pharisee, looks at that and says, this, this Jesus guy can't be legit. He would never let that happen. If he was a real prophet, he, he would never let that happen. That's the context. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. It's a great parable. A certain creditor who had two debtors, people who owed money. One owed 500 denarii. That's a lot of money. And the other owed 50. That's a decent amount. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. So we understand the analogy here. Two people owed, one owed a lot, one owed a tenth of that. And, And he said the creditor freely forgave them both. His question now, tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more doesn't Jesus have just a beautiful way of getting to the heart of an issue? He just takes the cookies and puts them on the bottom shelf. I love it. And so he, he puts it, so they, he gets it. And even this proud man understood it. And he's and Simon answered and said, "I suppose the one whom he forgave more, right? He got it." And he said to him, "You have rightly judged." In other words, you got it right. It's easy when you're looking at someone else. You got it right. But he didn't see it in his own life. Then he said to the woman, or he he turned to the woman, and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Isn't that what Jesus taught? Was she a better person? Had she committed less sins than Simon? No. In fact, she had done some of the worst things. She had taken the beautiful gift of God and, and just turned it into something dirty. But she came to a point in her life where she recognized I don't deserve the free gift of salvation, right? I don't deserve it. And God says, that's what I want. That's what I want. He doesn't want a person who can say, "Yeah, I'm kind of proud of the fact that I, I don't do those sins. I've never done those sins. That's not what God's looking for. That's religion. And I'm telling you, religion can't save you, right? But God's looking for that relationship. That's why he uses the word love here. He says, she loves more that's what he wants he wants people to love him that's why the, the you can sum up the, the Old Testament commands and to love the Lord and love each other right and, and it's about love God wants to have that relationship with us It's not a religious thing where you can earn your salvation because that would that would defeat the whole point of, of humbly coming to the Lord and, uh, and and you know what that's what we see in, in Jacob we saw this I'm not worthy of the mercies that you've given to me. But he also believed in the promises. In fact, the very next verse in Genesis 32, this is what Jacob said. He says, for you, talking to the Lord, you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for, uh, for multitude. His point, I'm trusting in what you told me, Lord. I'm trusting in what you said. And that brings us to the third point. Salvation also implies faith in the promises of God. You take the promises of God and you say, I, I believe in those things. And it's one thing, first you have to humble yourself and recognize that you don't deserve it. But then you have to receive it and say, you know what? I believe in the promises of God. You know, what? I'm telling you right now, I believe that I will be one day in heaven, in the presence of God. You say, well, how can you believe such a radical promise, right? I believe, I believe in that. I'll tell you what, though, it's not because I deserve it. You know, I, I don't... I would hate to put my worst moments up on screen for people to see. I'd be embarrassed by, by the things I've done or said or the things I may have done to hurt people's feelings. Or, I, wouldn't you be embarrassed? Yep. Yes. But I don't deserve it, and God did it for me. And I, and I recognize that, and God says, that's what I want. I want to have a relationship with you. And, and God and I have a relationship. And it's one where he's the blesser and I'm the grateful one. Right? And that's, what it, and, and that's the way it should be. We should have that relationship with God. Not because we're good, and, but because he has done something for us. And then we can have faith in him that whatever he says he will do, he, he'll do. You know, and, and so salvation implies, implies faith in the promises of God. Now, some people struggle with this. Uh, they, they ask the question, but if God doesn't base his choice on our behavior, isn't that unjust? And so that's what Paul answers in the last few verses that we'll look at today, verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And uh, so we look at this. Now, this is a quote, by the way, from Exodus 32. In Exodus, 30, uh, in Exodus 31, uh, or thirty. This is a quote from Exodus 33. What happened in Exodus 32 was the golden calf incident. Moses comes down from the mountain, and, and he's got the Ten Commandments, and, and the golden calf incident, they're, they're worshiping the, the, the religions like they had done in Egypt, and, and, and God is so fuming mad that he says, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe him out, and I'm going to start over with Moses. All right? You know the story. And Moses and God talk, and there's a deliberation between the two. And God says, you know what? I'm going to have mercy on them. I'm going to create a system for them to come to repentance through the tabernacle. But I am going to show mercy to them. That's the context where God said to them in Exodus 33, I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion and mercy on whomever I want to have mercy. And Paul quotes that. What's, what's Paul's point then? It's justice is universally applied. We all deserve justice, Right? We deserve to be punished for our sins. We deserve uh, to be punished for everything we've ever done wrong. That's, that's just the nature of justice. When someone does something wrong and they don't get any punishment for it, we call that injustice, right? But here Paul is saying, but mercy and compassion goes above and beyond that. It's, uh, it goes above it. So God is completely just, but in fact, he's just because he made sure those sins are paid for. But he's merciful because he paid for them instead of us. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of Jesus dying on the cross. He died to pay for your sins because you deserved it. But he loved you. And he loves you. He wants you. He's chosen you. If you're willing to humble yourself to him. And, uh, and he wants you to come to him. And, uh, and so that's what it means by, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is an example that Paul gives of mercy when it's undeserved, and then Paul turns to an example of the opposite end of the spectrum, verse 17 and 18. For the scripture says to, to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he, uh, and whom he wills, he hardens what? Wait a minute. I can understand God doing one side of that, softening the heart of a person, helping them come to the point where they they would understand the gospel, um, but hardening somebody? See, this is in the context of the plagues. In the plagues, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And God says, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to do it in such a public way, the whole world will know the answer to it. Right? And so God begins to have plagues. And we've talked about this before. I'm not going to go into all the details of this. Um, uh, but, but God takes all of the great gods of Egypt, and He one by one, he starts showing his power over them. Oh, you worship this God? I'm going to show my power. So he, he does that. Five times in a row, Pharaoh says, I'm, I've had enough with this plague. I'll let the, I'll let the Israelites go. Remember that? And then, as soon as the plague was gone, five times in a row, what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart and says, I will not let the people of Israel go. The Bible's very clear. Five times out of 10, ten plagues, five of those times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. By the time of the sixth plague, he's getting a little sick of these plagues. Wouldn't you be? I mean, just read about those plagues. I would hate those plagues. I mean, I complain when it's ten degrees outside. <laughs> and, and I haven't suffered anything like the plagues of Egypt. And yet, after five times It's come to a point where Pharaoh is willing to let the people go Not because he softened his heart Not because he recognized the answer to the question Oh, you're Yahweh, you're the creator I need to submit myself to you He just wanted them out He wanted Yahweh and Yahweh's people Out of his country Right? And so that's why we read The sixth time, the seventh time, the eighth time The ninth time, the tenth time God hardened Pharaoh's heart Why? He wasn't done talking Let God be God. That tells us some things too, by the way. If you harden your heart to God, and you keep hardening your heart to God because in the back of your mind you think, well, I'll accept later. There might not be a later. You never know. And there could come a point where God says, I'm done. And I will show compassion on whom I'll show compassion and mercy on whom I'll show mercy. And I will harden who I want to harden if if I want to as well. Was I right? This is, this is deep doctrinal stuff. But it's so true. And it, and it explains so much for us to understand that God is God. And that doesn't sound so deep. But when you really let it sink in, the fact that God is God is a deep theological truth. Amen? So what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? Three things I just want to say. Number one, you have nothing to brag about. Pardon my, the vernacular there. I know that's not grammatically correct. You have nothing about which to brag, I should say. But let's just put it in common terms. You have nothing to brag about. Right? God did not choose you because he thought, this guy needs to be on my team. This guy, I need his talent. Right? God did not choose you because of that. Number two, God does not need you in order to accomplish his will. Think about that for a moment. He doesn't need you in order to accomplish his his will. Is there anything that you can do for God that he couldn't have done without you? He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He could have done it. But he wants to include you. He wants to share the glory with you because he loves you. It's not about a religion where you can earn credit and say, wow, I'm I'm working myself up into the kingdom. Jesus slams the apostles when they do that. And they say, well, who who gets to be at the right hand and left hand of you in heaven? Because who's doing more work for you? It's not about doing work for me, guys. That's what Jesus said. God did not choose you because he needed you. Serving God is a pure privilege. Isn't it? It's pure privilege. Privilege. And if you if you go into whatever ministry you do, a lot of you have different ministries in this church. If you go into your ministries thinking that I'm going to this ministry because God needs me, then you're you're gonna burn out. But if you go in there saying, I get to share in, in God's glory. He's giving me a chance to do something, and and, and you know what? You can't turn anyone's heart. God can. If you lead someone to the Lord, it's not because of you, it's because God God's involved in that, right? And so, so everything that you do, it's through God, and it's a humbling thought, but it's a.